Hello and welcome to the Björkness podcast. I'm Stephen Alton here with my colleague Ingil Pilskog. Good day. And we work for the Björkness Centre for Climate Research. Today, we're talking about citizen scientists helping to trace the origins of Norwegian snow. Accurately modelling water transport in the atmosphere is of vital importance to our society, from helping to predict extreme precipitation and flooding to managing hydropower resources. By understanding where water originated from and the path it travelled, researchers at the Björkness Centre were able to gain insights into the water transport in the atmosphere and to test the water cycle simulated by our models. And volunteer citizen scientists are helping to make this happen. We're joined today by Harold Soderman, Professor of Meteorology at the Geophysical Institute and recipient of one of the prestigious ERC Consolidator Grants. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning and welcome to the show. So, Harold, tell us about the atmospheric water cycle. Yeah, the atmospheric water cycle is one of the most exciting things I know about when it comes to, to atmospheric sciences. Um, as a matter of fact, the, the water was one of the last things that has been added to our models. So people for a long time worked in the 60s and in the 50s, 60s, started to work with dry atmospheres, just temperature and pressure and winds. Uh, and the water is so complicated with all the small things that are happening, like rain and cloud and when water evaporates, when it goes from the ocean to the atmosphere, that people only later on added this to the to the models that we have today. And that, in a little bit, it's still it's still uh, lagging behind the knowledge in uh, compared to the other aspects that we work with. So there's lots to do, and it is one of the things that matters most to our everyday lives. If you think of a rainy day in Bergen, or a very rainy day, or even a dry day, uh, that matters a lot to us. So it is of very particular importance here in Bergen. Yeah, I wouldn't say that people, normal people would consider it like a small thing, the water in the atmosphere. That's true. It's, a, it's one of the fundamental feedback mechanisms also in the climate system. Um, but um, from, a, from a perspective of how our understanding is, is developed at this point, uh, it's one of the things that, that still has a lot of room to improve, I think. Now, at our latitude, our general flow is, of course, westerly. So a lot of our weather and moisture is coming off of the North Atlantic. But there is a waviness to this and we do get weather from different directions. So we do get it coming from the south, bringing air and moisture from the Mediterranean. And we do get it also from the north, bringing weather systems and cold air out of the Arctic. So how does this sort of the path and the, the direction that the flows come from affect moisture transport into this area? It, it, that is a very uh, excellent question. And, and that, is, that is exactly the thing I'd, I'd like to understand better with the, with the work that we're doing. Um, you can think of this, for example, on a seasonal cycle in the summer or the winter. Um, during summer months, the, the air comes um, at slower speed and from different directions, for example, um, what we know is that in the summertime we have more influence from Central Europe uh, and uh, also we know that in the summer there is more vegetation uh, that can actually contribute a lot of water to the atmosphere. And so in the summer we get connections between the water that's coming from the continent and then 
um, and then transport it over the, the Baltic seas towards our direction. Whereas in the winter, we're almost always dominated by the ocean regions. So this land-ocean contrast is one of the fundamental aspects of the seasonal cycle. Now, apart from just where this water's coming from, there's also a little bit difference in how the water's coming. If you take the North Atlantic, for example, most people would think of the big storms coming across the North Atlantic and the heavy rains they bring. But this isn't the only moisture transport. You have a more general moisture coming on the background flow. You also have other structures like atmospheric rivers. So between storms and atmospheric rivers and background flow, how do these compare to one another? Is most of the moisture coming from one? Is, are there particular differences? There are, there are interesting differences between different weather systems. So if you take uh, your typical large winter storm, uh, which some people ha um, now refer to as atmospheric rivers embedded in those storms, which are the strong frontal uh, moisture transport that is happening in these, in these systems, then you get very long-range transport, often from westerly but also southwesterly directions. Often those systems bring the moisture across the UK towards our direction. But uh, I think later this week and, and also very often in the wintertime and in northern parts of Norway, we get a, a contrasting kind of weather system, which is um, related to cold air coming off the ice edge. Those are called cold air outbreak events. And uh, these cold air outbreak events make very different weather. It's the typical shower weather that we get, rain on and off, snow on and off. And uh, the people from Tromsø, for example, really don't like this weather because they have to shovel snow all day long. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so... We understand that water comes from different places. We understand that it's coming in different ways. But once the water is precipitated out of the atmosphere, such as, as rain or in this particular instance as snow, how can you tell where it came from? It's not like it has a return address. It actually kind of has some kind of record about its, what happened to it. And that's, uh, that's the intricate part of, of the work that we're doing. Um, so... I have a glass of water here in front of me, and that water in there, usually people would say that's H2O. But uh, if we look very closely, then it's not just H2O, not just hydrogen and oxygen, uh, but those molecules, the hydrogen and the oxygen molecules, they have little siblings that are a tiny bit heavier. Oxygen has heavier siblings, ox oxygen 18, oxygen 17, and hydrogen has heavier siblings, the deuterium. Uh, and uh, also there's tritium. And these kind of um, siblings of, of water molecules, they are a tiny bit heavier than regular water. And those tiny weight differences uh, cause the water to behave slightly differently uh, when it's evaporating from the ocean, when it's condensing in a cloud, and when it's raining back down to the surface. And we're using those tiny differences to learn about the transport history of the water vapor. So this is a little bit similar to, I suppose, forensic scientists when they look at a dirt sample or a water sample and they look for a specific microbe or a specific chemical in it. You're looking for some sort of tracer that you can find. That's exactly true. So the, But the tracer, and that's interesting, is not something else, but it's the water itself. So you are looking at the isotopes of water and 
then it's the ratio between like the different isotopes tell you where the water is coming from. Yes. So the the word isotopes is is the key here. Yeah. Uh, and and so so the different heavy kinds of water are called isotopes. Uh, and the heavier isotopes, uh, they uh, have a different um, vapor pressure. We call that. So so they like to condense earlier because mm -hmm. they're they have more mass. So they they are bound closely more closely together. And that makes them prefer the liquid phase over the vapor phase. Mm. So they like to stay ocean if they can, and they're less likely to be in the vapor. And if you now think of a, a cloud that is coming a long way from the ocean, then whenever there is a chance to precipitate, to make rain in the cloud, the heavier isotopes will prefer going into the rain and rain out from the cloud. So we're lacking more and more of these heavy isotopes the longer the air is being transported. So given a sample of water, you can trace its origins? Not exactly. Not so exactly. It, it, is, it is a tracer of what, what conditions the air mass underwent. Uh, and because we know what we talked about earlier, the different weather systems and how they bring water to our, to our location, we can relate that to the isotope composition. Mm. So we know water from the ice edge, for example, has evaporated under much colder conditions and has traveled shorter distances, whereas water from an atmospheric river has come a longer way, potentially, uh, has been at warmer conditions, but has had more time to also precipitate out. When you have the water rivers, or like the, the long distance rivers, then since they it's warmer conditions, it's more likely heavier isotopes have gone up, but also the longer distance will reduce the amount before they coming down. That is correct, yes. Yeah. yeah. It's a very interesting study and this can tell us quite a lot about where water's been coming from. Where do citizen scientists come into this? Where are the people hmm. coming into this? Hmm. There's, there's a few more steps before the citizen science science makes sense in this context, I think. And for, for one, well, these isotopes are useful to, to make models um, more consistent with real, reality or to make models better, uh, to, to say it in this general way. Um, because the isotopes are a tracer across a chain of events from evaporation to precipitation, we can see how our models simulate this entire chain in the water cycle from evaporation to precipitation. So they have to get a lot of things right to simulate the correct isotope values that we also observe. Now, when I worked, start, started working on this, when I started working on this, um, I looked for data sets that would help me to, to compare my models uh, uh, to, uh, but there were none, not of the kind that I was looking for. So that's when I started to make plans for sampling campaigns with this uh, for isotope observations. So when you do this uh, sampling campaign, uh, obviously you're going out and you're taking precipitated water, either as rainfall or snow, bringing this back to the lab, studying the isotopes in it. Do you take into account the uh, weather at the time? Do you do you look and say, ah, oh, we've had a week of air coming from the ice edge in the north? And we'll take, and we know it's been precipitating in the mountains, so we'll go and get snow now, so we know where it's come from. Right now, we we do that. So, so we have in the next four weeks, uh, uh, we have in the next four weeks a campaign uh, in the Finse, uh, so in the Norwegian mountains here, uh, where we look day by day on the weather events 
And if the weather looks interesting, because we have a clear origin from the predictions that we look at, then we we send out uh, observers that collect snow on the surface. Now, this campaign that we're doing now is is done by scientists, but we'll also continue that during the Easter week when we, we ask the public to help us collect more samples from a larger area. And this is what you did last Easter in 2019. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. So we've been learning from, from the first trials and, and slowly going step by step to make this a, a more a bigger enterprise. Uh, the thing is, we want to collect data over large areas. And that is because, you know, when you think of just rain, rain is very variable. If you collect the rain here or 100 meters apart from here, it can be very different. The interesting thing is that the isotopes that we look at will be the same 100 meters away. So they have a much uh, slower variation. They're, they vary maybe over 25 to 50 kilometers, but not over um, over 100 meters. And that's something that is very helpful for, for this kind of study because when we send people different places, it doesn't know, matter exactly where they take the sample as long as they have a certain kind of distance between them. You just need to cover a very wide area exactly. to make sure you've got the flows from different directions yes. captured in these isotopes. And, and the wide area in a mountainous terrain is also particularly helpful because the mountains make more clouds, the air has to rise, and so you get stronger gradients in the mountains. But they're also less accessible, so we need different ways of how people get to the places where they sample. And in 2019 in Easter, you asked... Uh, volunteer citizens, just normal people, go out and take samples of the snow. They go on ski trips anyway, so they just have to pick up a vial of snow for you. Is that... That's, that's the thing we did, yes. And, and it's, it's actually a fantastic opportunity, especially here in Norway, because Easter time is the time of skiing. It's when you have the most snow in the mountains and when you have usually, you can have nice weather. So people go to the mountains and they go skiing anyways. So we asked them, while you're skiing out there, wherever you go, just bring some snow back to our lab. But they also note where they are finding the snow then? Yes, that's important for us to know where they picked up the snow. It's not important to us where they will go, as long as they note where they picked up the snow. So you actually prepare uh, snow kits that you hand out with information, a, a label they have to fill in, little vials and yeah. such like? I have such a snow kit with me. Oh. It's just a bag, bag with uh, some plastic uh, sampling bags in here and some glass tubes and a, and a spoon. And we have a sheet in there or also now this year we're going to use a website where people can sign up what they, what they were looking for, where they went. And then people just have to shovel a few spoonsfuls of snow into one of the plastic bags, uh, seal it, melt it, pour it over to the glass vial, then bring it back for our analysis. Mm. It's very simple and for us it's very very valuable because we would never be able to cover such huge areas as they do. So how's the quality of the data? Is that workable? Um, so that was uh, something we, we want to know about of course uh, and last year we we had challenging weather conditions because it was very sunny and very dry for a long period before Easter so a lot of the snow surface was more or less ice crust or very uh, rough crust. 
and we weren't sure before whether it would actually make sense to go out uh, and send people out. But when we look at the entirety of the data, so we had uh, more than 160 samples, I believe, that we finally analyzed, um, we see very clear spatial gradients between the east and the west uh, of the of the southern mountains in Norway along certain certain line in the mountains and those were from different people so it was not just one people were in the east and one in the west but all those all those samplers and we could trace it back to different weather systems that at different times in the winter brought snow to the east and the west and they had different signatures and we could extract those different signatures from from the samples that we got so it was successful and the quality was sufficient do you undertake any quality control because i'm assuming that for example finsa in this region you actually have quite a lot of people going skiing there so you'd have a large number of samples from just one location surely some of these are anomalous compared to the rest what we're doing this year is uh, is to make a specific uh, setup for quality control we will also ask um, um, avalanche observers from NVE to take samples for us. And those we consider our reference samplers because they have a lot of experience in, in taking samples on the way. And we compare those samples then with those from the citizen scientists to see if we need to exclude some samples. We have also ways after the analysis um, to figure out samples, for example, where there was a leak of water along the way that will change our isotope uh, signature but we can detect that from from measuring two parameters uh, of isotope composition at the same time so you actually have built-in quality controls in it, this one yes it is kind of built in into the analysis because this has always been a criticism of using citizen scientists uh, Another example that's quite common in this region is sort of electronic home weather stations that people set up in their gardens and they take measurements and it's a fantastic source of data because it's hundreds of measurements. Mm. But um, their thermometers, for example, are put out in direct sunlight. They're not in a Stevenson screen like a WMO weather station would be. So you always have that problem of can you trust the quality of what you're getting back? But I guess with in this particular case, it's a very unique situation. I think it is, uh, it is maybe easier with the isotope composition to do citizen science than with uh, with regular weather data, um, but nonetheless we need to assess this a bit more, and that's also what we're what we're trying to do this year to to really before we just trust uh, every data point. We won't we won't just trust every data point without looking more closely at it. So. From this great field campaign, you mentioned you've analysed the results and you've shown this uh, gradient across Norway. These two weather systems, is west and eastern Norway then in the wintertime governed by different weather processes? Is the moisture brought into those regions by different processes? Or That's, uh, That is probably the case. So we have looked, for last year at least, we have looked at different uh, weather systems and how they, how they approach the topography. If they come straight from the west, they're less likely to make snow further in the east. But if they come from a more southerly direction, sometimes even from an easterly direction, then they will do the reverse and bring more precipitation on the east. Or if they come from the south, they come across the entire uh, mountain area uh, and, and reach both, both regions. So that's something we want to do and look at this year during the next th three weeks. I have a group of 10 students uh, that have uh, signed up for the project. 
and they are basically on standby uh, with their skis. And we tell them, go now after this event. And then they have assigned segments that we will cover by ski and take uh, snow samples every two or three kilometers. So we have really like this map of the snow event right after the event. Uh, and we hope to get different weather situations to compare from one single event how the gradients look like. Nice use of students. <laughs> they get paid for it. <laughs> so how do the results compare to the models? How well do the models represent these sort of differences in storms or moisture transport into western and eastern Norway? And how well are they reproducing precipitation? So that's something we will look into much more in the coming, uh, in the coming uh, months and years. Um, overall, the models are differing. Uh, so if you look at one model, it will produce one result. If you look at another one, it will be slightly different. Um, and for one example we had uh, from summer a year ago or so was that the Norwegian forecasting model, the Rome model, was producing the rainfall too late. So the coast was always predicted to be rain-free here in Bergen. And then the rain would start in the model forecast later on, uh, near Voss maybe. But in fact, it was raining right at the coast. So that is one of the things that will influence the isotopes. If the rain starts too late, this will also produce less fractionation. So that's how the isotopes can help to constrain this entire process of how we get from vapor back to precipitation. So you can get better weather forecast by using this data. I think it will in the future be routine to have also isotopes in weather forecasting models that you also forecast the isotope composition and you know how good is is your weather forecasting models from that. So the field campaign last year, it sounds like it was a very big success. I think you had 80 participants and almost 200 samples. Yes. Um, but it's coming around again. There is a new campaign in 2020. That's true. And we would like to have participants for this campaign. So we're, we're going out uh, probably next week or the week after to advertise uh, that we want to have 50 participants from Bergen, 50 from Oslo. So we have a chance of covering east and west of the mountains, depending on where people go and have their, their cabins and so on. Um, and yeah, I would like to, to invite everybody who's interested in uh, science and who's going to happen to go skiing over Easter to take a sample for us. So like all mountainous area in southern Norway is of interest. Actually, we take all mountain areas in Norway. Excellent. So if anyone is listening and is interested, they should contact you. Absolutely. Yeah. The work you've done is very interesting. I'm wondering whether or not this could be applied to the past, to paleo data. If, for example, you've got an idea of what isotopes you should see, is there any way of translating this back and applying it back to paleo data? Could you look at isotopes in ice cores, for example? and from this work out how the flow was in the past. So if you think of paleo information on how, how the weather was in the past, there is much more work being done on that part than on the weather timescale that, that I'm now working on mostly. So there is a, quite a rich history of people that have analyzed ice cores and, and corals and 
you know, soil records and caves and, and very different um, pieces of information that we gather from the past. And all those signals are, in the end, made by weather events that we now understand better. So I would say, yes, it is very, very much connected, uh, the Palo information in, say, a, uh, a dripstone in a stalagmite or in an ice core to the actual weather that happened. Now, climate and weather are you know, processes that continue into one another. A lot of weather makes in the end climate. Uh, and disentangling this, you know, what does a shift in the isotopes mean? Was it longer moisture transport? Was it a different source of the moisture? Or was it just warmer weather? Uh, that is That is a very tough research question and I think we'll we'll have to work a lot more on this in the future. So looking at the time I see we're coming to the end of our show. One final question then, how do you think the water cycle will change going into the future? We know the water cycle will be more variable, more extreme uh, in different ways so it can be more dry, it can be more humid uh, and all that is happening overall in the water atmosphere and if you think of water molecules more of them are around if the atmosphere is warmer. So there's just more more energy. Uh, and, and that energy will unload in intense rain events. It will unload, uh, unload in prolonged drought events. Um, so we're going to see changes for sure. Uh, and the isotopes should also record these changes. And, and the kinds of work that we're doing will help us to get the processes right in the models in the first place. So we can trust the model predictions even more and into even more detail. Harold, thank you for joining us. You're welcome. We've been talking to Professor Harold Soderman about the water cycle and the role of citizen scientists. We hope you enjoyed the show and we'll tune in again next time. From myself, Stephen Alton, and my colleague, Ingil Pilskut. Thank you for listening. You have now been listening to a podcast from the Birkner Center for Climate Research. The Birkner Center is a partnership between the University of Bergen, Norwegian Research Center NORS, the Nonsense Environmental and Remote Sensing Center, and the Institute for Marine Research. The music is by Lee Rosevere, Arcade Montage, under Creative Commons by Y. 3.0. The podcast is edited by me, Ingel Pilskog, Associate Professor at the University of Applied Sciences at Laringslaben at the University of Bergen, Media City, Bergen.